listener production. Wanted to start today by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, traditional custodians of the land on where we are recording this right now and pay my respects to their elders past and present and also extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here today. Guys, welcome to Black Matters, a podcast where we break down the news and affairs that are happening right now in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander space. My name is MC, radio broadcaster for the Hit Network, and today FM in Sydney. This is Teela Reid, Wiradjuri and Walwyn woman, land rights lawyer, advocate for First Nations people, and of course, the other half of this podcast. Yama, hello. So, Teela, 2023 is a massive year with the referendum on the First Nations voice to Parliament, and there's a lot that we need to unpack and explore. But in this first episode, it's about explaining, I guess, what led us to this point, the Uluru Statement from the Hard, and it's also about introducing you and I, because we go a long way back. We grew up together in a small town, northwest New South Wales, an hour north of Dubbo. Gilgandra, centre of the universe. Correct. And, and Tila, I, looking back, always thought that we had quite a similar experience growing up. Same group of friends, doing the same things. At times, didn't really see that there was much of a difference. Was that actually the case? Well, like some parts were obviously. Our schooling was quite similar and it was probably like the one forum in which I guess we were engaged in Western education and I mean, we were all pulled into line in that system, right? But we probably, you know, as soon as I walked out of the school gates, I knew my life was very different. For example, I remember this, probably in like primary school, I was probably about, yeah, year two or year three, sick with chicken pox. Can you see like this like scar on my forehead? Mm -hmm. There's like a chicken pox scar there. And I was really ill which obviously meant, you know, I couldn't go to school um, because I was so violently sick. And I grew up in that town with my single Aboriginal mum, God bless her heart. And she did a great job. I was so loved. Like I lived across the road from my grandparents, had a big kinship, had lots of aunties, cousins. Um, It was a great childhood. And I think one of the experiences that made me realize my life would be very different when I, you know, to my friends at school was when I was ill and the authorities rocked up to our doorstep and I remember being in bed in that moment and my mum ran in and looked at me and she said, you need to hide in the cupboard. And I didn't really understand at that point why, but as an adult now, I totally get her fear of losing an Aboriginal. Why? Yeah. Why? Because I was marked absent as an Aboriginal kid from school. Yes. For a... This is only like... A couple of days we're talking. It's like you've been gone for weeks or months. No, just a couple of days, yeah. She uh, ordered me to get in the cupboard and not come out until she told me to come out. And I was, like, really worried 
but like also probably too young to understand. But as we know, there's a history of authorities in New South Wales in particular, in which Aboriginal kids and particularly Aboriginal mums are targeted and their children are removed for whatever reason, you know, whatever the state says. And so I was marked absent from a, for a couple of days from school and the authorities from Dubbo came out knocking on my mum's door, questioning her why. I was not at school. And so it became clear to me that I, I really needed to, to learn how to navigate these two very different worlds that, that I was growing up in. So that's mind-blowing. That is absolutely mind-blowing that you're away from school for a couple of days and they just assume that your mother's, I don't know, Negligent. on the couch drunk yeah. at home and you're not at school as opposed to being incredibly ill, which can happen when you get chickenpox. So where did you get that education? Where did you, where, where did that happen? A lot of the things passed down to me as a young Koori kid, I'd learned from my elders around the campfire. So like I lived in this little street, as you know, in Gilgandra, the same street, and directly across from my grandparents, my granddad had this like little campfire over in the corner of the garden of my nan's garden. And lots of the kids, you know, would come sit around and have to make the elders cups of teas and as Black followers would be travelling through the town. They would always stop to make sure he had some firewood and enough tea bags and biscuits because he was the man that would pass down all of these stories about the history and legacy of oppression of my people. Every black fellow knows that campfires in our, our communities are cleansing, they're regenerative, they're healing spaces. And so it was just a real free-flowing space. The fire would always be going, especially of a late afternoon, right into the night as the stars would come up. That's one of the things about the city, like we hardly ever see the stars here. But back then, we would drag our mattresses out from across the road and lie down and as the elders and by this time people would come and go and just sit around and tell us yarns and they would all be yarns of, of connection. Looking back, what do you think you learnt? from those moments? What do you take away from that? I just think I learned that there is a real sense of obligation in my life to make the next generation's life and leave a legacy that is able to, I think, give them greater power and control over their lives and allow them to create the space that they need to create to tell their stories, to use their voices and to just be really proud of who they are as black fellas. You have to think about this, that generation just before me, they weren't allowed to wear red, black and yellow or like speak their language. And I'm the generation that's kind of now obligated to try and change that. So you go on this path, you end up at the UN, you study law, do a ridiculous amount of interesting and important things, including working on the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Now, I know that this is linked to the referendum that's taking place this year, but let's, let's just take a step back. Can you explain what it actually is? The Uluru Statement from the Heart, in its most purest form, you could explain it as a, a petition. It is not the first petition. Mm -hmm. It is not the first invitation to create some systemic change. For example, there's a Barunga statement when Bob Hawke was the then Prime Minister of Australia. He was 
given that statement at the Barunga Festival. He promised a treaty at that time and that never came to pass. There's been the Larrakia petition. There's been the Kirribilli statement. Lots of different statements issued from First Nations peoples to the government. What makes the Uluru statement very different, though, is that this is a statement issued directly to the Australian people. As a result of all of those lessons from the past where, you know, the hard work, the petition was handed over to the government, a prime minister, sometimes in the past, you know, Sir William Cooper, he he wrote a letter to the king of Britain to try and reconcile our nation's foundational differences. What makes the Uluru Statement so unique and so pivotal for us, it's that We'd learned the lessons from the past. We didn't go to the politicians this time. We went straight to Australians to walk with us on this movement of the Australian people. And it calls for two very simple things. It calls for a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution and a Makarata Commission. Explain Makarata Commission. Because I've heard you use this word in just conversation and on social. Mm. What's Makarata? So Makarata is also, you know, it it was gifted to the First Nations movement by the Yongle people. It is expressed in the Uluru Statement as a Makarata Commission. The Yongle explained this word as, in English, the coming together after a struggle. Right. Why would there... Why would there be First Nations people opposed to a voice? Well, just like whitefellas, we don't necessarily all agree on a single issue, but yep. we certainly do stand united, I think, in our struggle. Yeah. And so I think that's what Australia is just beginning to grasp, is that we have an amazing continent with over 250 First Nations and part of recognising a First Nations voice is to enable all of those amazing different voices. And what an amazing opportunity we have to learn from all the stories of the different First Nations and all the voices. And I think we have to begin to start to see that as an asset to us, as a real important opportunity to elevate the diversity of views. Because if you look at white politics, for example, can you march down to Canberra and and ask them the same thing? They all agree on everything. I don't know what you're talking (laughs) about. I I think it's important that that you raise that, though, because all of these nations... They all have their own culture, their own language, their own traditions. It would be like getting the entire world, a leader from every single country in the world, into a room and saying, let's all agree on one thing. But I think you have to really focus on this point and how significant it was to form a consensus in in issuing the Uluru Statement. So in the process of uh, getting to that, amazing position at Uluru when the statement was issued to the people and not the politicians. There were many years that went into uh, including a cross-section of the First Nations community. 
What it ultimately means is that there were a higher percentage of First Nations people involved in that process than there was of white Australia at the time Australia became a federation. So I don't think we can lose sight of how enormous this moment is for us, given the cross-section of First Nations communities and voices that went into that process. And I mean, that means... It wasn't just the voices that have profiles or, um, you know, a role in politics. These were grassroots voices from across the continent. And there is so much to be said about the achievement um, of forming that consensus in the Uluru Statement and issuing it to the people because it does call for many different things. And if you think about, you know, back to this word Makarata and that commission, the idea is to enshrine a First Nations voice to ensure that all the different voices then can engage in a Makarata process to enable treaties and truth-telling. For a proud First Nations woman to see all of this come together, like mm. what, what was all of this like? The, the line was drawn in the red dust out in Uluru that this is the moment. We're not, we're not backing down from substantive change and to be part of that process. I think people forget this. It was very difficult work. Yeah. It was enormous. At the time, you have to think about this Prime Minister Turnbull had sanctioned basically First Nations peoples to the table and created the referendum council, which then was tasked to go out and ask First Nations peoples, how do they seek to be recognised? Because the nation had never done that, ever. Two-part question. What do you hope the future for Australia involves? And what do you hope this podcast can do to help the future of Australia? I do hope for our nation that we will see a time in which there is peace on our country. I'm certainly living like we are in that moment now. And the hard work is right now. And that these yarns that we are having are really crucial to that ripple effect of other people also embracing this conversation about where we're at. Because you think about it as well, when we were at school, that system was so whitewashed, we hardly got any truth about the reality of history. I personally was getting that separate education from my own family. Mm-hmm. And now suddenly all of this is coming within the public domain. And Honestly, I just, I feel so proud to be a black fella. I mean, that's my power. That's my purpose. And in order to break through and continue, I think, to strive for what I do hope is finally peace in our country, that we can just play a small role in that. And that might not happen in our lifetimes, but I think it's our obligation to do what we can now. Next week on the podcast... We're going to really dig into the voice. We're going to talk about this referendum, what it is, what will it do, why is it so important. Teela, thank you so much. I think we've done it. Episode one, we got there. You, Yalu. Actually, before we go, what I would like to do. Yes. I just want to learn a piece of your language each and every episode. It's something that I can take and use in my life. So Yalu. Yalu means means goodbye. Easy one. There we go. That's your homework, guys. Yalu means goodbye in Wiradjuri. Goodbye. Thanks for having us. We'll see you all next week. Wow.